So this long stretch of ordinary time between the beginning of summer and the beginning of Advent, we are doing a series called Spiritual Formation Over a Lifetime. In these first few weeks, we're looking at the life of Peter, and as we get more towards Advent, we'll be looking at the life of David. The purpose of thinking about this is to alert us to the notion that formation does precisely happen over a lifetime, and that our trek in formation is going to have ups and downs. It is going to have to take serious stages of life. I mean, what a 17-year-old faces is not necessarily that which a 47-year-old with three junior high kids faces. Somebody who maybe has had trauma in their life in the sense of sickness or you know, major illness or death or something like that, it's going to have a little something else going on in their lives. And I have just found upon long reflection now that there is an important but subtle mix that I think we do well to pay attention to in our formation into Christ-likeness. And that is, it feels to me that there is a gentle, but as I said, subtle, this feels very subtle to me, a subtlety of a focus and a kind of striving in the best sense of that term. Striving the way a child, you know, just, you know, wants to master a little bit of crafts or something, a playful striving, along with a give yourself a break. And to be noticed, just to notice and be real about what's presently happening in your life. And maybe you're in a time where it feels particularly strenuous, that your formation feels strenuous to you. You might be in a time where it feels like it has a little ease to you. And that's okay, because spiritual formation happens over a lifetime. And, it, and it's all good. And of course, we see this um, very poignantly in Peter. Now, thinking of not Peter the man, but Peter the letter, what we now call Peter the letter, we began last week noticing that he's writing to confused and pain-filled Christians who are undergoing severe cultural and social pressure and maybe even kinds of persecution. And of course, their natural impulse was to wonder about compromise so that they could either survive or maybe be accepted by this culture. And so it's against that backdrop that Peter exhorts them, we saw last week, as the people of God, reminding them that, yes, you're in this culture, and that's true and good and real, and we read some of that in our passage today. And there's just parts of it, like the emperor, that you just have to deal with. But just remember that while you're in this culture, that culture is not ultimate, it's not definitive, but it's real. But what's definitive about you is that you're the people of God, and that you're chosen for a particular purpose. And that purpose is to pursue discipleship to Jesus in no matter what culture you find yourself in. Now, people in this room who are my age, you know, early 60s and maybe beyond, especially if you're from Southern California, you can remember when we were cool. <laughs> we were. You know, we invented contemporary church. We invented contemporary music, Christian music. We were the cool kids. Not so much now. I mean, one of the worst things you can be on the earth is me a white, you know, middle-aged man. I mean, well, it's a remarkable how in 50 years you can go from cool to completely uncool and the problem on the earth. And so all that stuff's real. But Peter is saying rightfully, but it's not definitive. What's definitive about you is in all the ups and downs of the culture that we find ourselves in, that we're pursuing an active, focused, energetic, disciplined path of formation. And that the cultural and economic and social and racial issues that surround us, the political issues, 
That is simply the soil from which we do our formation. And in times of want, that brings up certain kinds of little pressures on our formation. In times of plenty, there's other little aspects of our formation. But our goal is really simple, that we're trying to live into this notion that we are a chosen people. Look at your text. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And you can just kind of stop right there and say, wow, that's cool. But next, there's this little four-letter word, that, that alerts us to divine purpose. You are these things for the divine purpose that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, I want you to notice, again, look at your passage there with those, those four pretty amazing statements about the church, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special, special possession. And I want you to notice the positive, lofty view of the church. Again, not so much today. You know, I don't, I don't talk much about this, not because it's a secret, it just doesn't cross my mind that much, but you know, Debbie and I had, uh, in the, I forgot, I lose track of time, but late 90s, early 2000s, we had our own sojourn of being de-churched. Even I, as a professional Christian, was just done with it. I was over it. Didn't get it, didn't seem to be making that much difference. And what I personally was experiencing 17, 18 years ago has now become sort of mainstream. This constant you know, critique and you know, borderline dismissal of the church. And again, I get it, I don't have any beef with anybody who's feeling that. But I just wanna say, on the other hand, Peter has this very lofty view of the church that Even if you find yourself in a church that's not doing well, again, that's just soil for your discipleship. And if you find yourself in a culture that doesn't get church in this little era we live in, okay, that's just soil for our discipleship, but it doesn't change the ultimate truths of who we actually are. And of course, for Peter, this is rooted in Israel's historical divine calling. I mean, those phrases are phrases that were used of Israel, and Peter's borrowing them to use them of us. Now, I think, again, remember Peter saying this against the backdrop of all this cultural pressure and confusion, and I think this alerts us to the notion that the primary business of the church, as Peter says, as aliens and strangers in this world, is to be concerned first with its own formation. Now, you might say, well, wait, 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 you know, what about mission? What about evangelism? Yes, of course, all that is assumed. So don't think here maybe so much in terms of first in terms of what's important, but think with me about first in terms of sequence. How do you live for others if you haven't first lived into your calling? If you haven't first, no matter what kind of dopey church you might have grown up in, if you haven't first accepted, I am God's chosen person, that, you can't get to the that. So this isn't about sort of accepting church or a model of church or a historical era of church. This is about something that has this big, broad, deep, historical history in the plan of God. And we first say yes to that, and then we get to the that. So we're concerned first with our, in a sense, our own self-identity as the people of God and living into alignment with this divine calling. And then only secondly do we deal with the cultural environment in which we find ourselves. In other words, for Peter, the one is meant to take care of the other. That as you give yourself to God, you become salty. And then that good, that's, that's you good. You can be the salt of the earth. And as you give yourself in formation to Christ, well, then good, you can be the light of the world. But you're not likely to get there apart from first, in terms of sequence, first giving yourself to those adjectives of Peter's. Now, again, if you look at your text, the, the spiritual practices that Peter recommends 
to live into this calling in the midst of social confusion and social rejection are these two verbs, to rid and crave. And the New Testament is pretty uh, consistent about this. This It's very much like Paul's put off your old self, put on your new self in Ephesians 4. It's very much like Paul in Colossians 3, set your hearts on things above, put to death the earthly nature, clothe yourself with compassion and love, generosity. So, So this is a very common theme. And so if we try to put it together, Peter's saying, If you want to live into this new identity, then you have to look at your text, rid yourself of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, and abstain from sinful desires with which war against your soul. And I think the picture that Peter gives us here tells us that, I think we talked about, I mentioned this word last week, the word brokenness, that's kind of come to us, I think, a lot from the therapeutic community, and I don't mean that as a put down, but I feel like it kind of came into popular vocabulary, I think, through the therapeutic world, which is fine. But I'm just saying that is a classic word that we just throw around and have no real sense of what does broken mean. We say, oh, she's just really broken. Well, what do we mean? Sometimes it has like a moral spin on it. You know, maybe somebody's involved in drugs or gambling or alcohol or something. But it's really broken. What is brokenness? Brokenness is essentially a misaimed self-will. It is mal-aligned wants. And this is what has to be dealt with in our formation. And once our desires, our wants, the things that we're focused on change, then the changed behavior becomes natural. But essentially brokenness in the sense in which we're talking about here with reference to discipleship is essentially a broken will. Now again, take the moralism off that. And you know, if, if you're a boy like me, you know, See yourself as a little kid, you just got a new toy and it falls apart and you run to mom and dad and go, "Eh, it's broken. What do you mean? You don't mean like this thing's got character problems. (laughs) Mom, this thing's immoral. (laughs) Now, what do you mean? You mean it doesn't work. The packaging said it had this intention to it. The box said it was supposed to do X, Y, Z. (laughs) Mom, it doesn't work. Broken. That's all brokenness means, is that we don't work. Well, against the, against, we don't work against what marketing? What's the outside of the box say? The outside of the box says you're a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, God's own people. And when our wanters aren't aligned with that, we're broken. And so then all the kind of common human brokenness is that we all see in our own lives and in our news feeds every day, those come out of a broken human will. And it's that kind of alignment that Peter is guiding us towards when he says, okay, so rid yourself of those things and then crave pure spiritual milk. And what he's getting at here, obviously, is kind of the strong instinctive longing of a baby for mother's milk. That is to say for sustenance, for flourishing. And and obviously the analogy here is that we're to seek the sustaining and flourishing life of God. And this can happen in any way that makes sense to you. I mean, I thought about it as I was preparing this. I, again, thinking back of my very earliest Calvary Chapel days, how we thought we, we were really trying to, we were sincerely trying to nourish ourselves in the Word of God. That's what it was all about. We sincerely thought that just like hearing the Bible taught to us line by line, it would nourish our souls. We, I, I mean, I think I at least speak for Debbie and I, we sincerely believe that was true. And I'm sure there are people sitting here today who, who you are here because you feel nourished in Eucharist. And I've 
been around people who were charismatics and Pentecostals who completely sincerely believed that they were being nourished in, you know, sort of charismatic or Pentecostal experiences. Well, I could just kind of think, well, of course. I mean, if, if spiritual formation happens over a lifetime, it doesn't surprise me at all that somebody who only knew the words of the Bible and had never known the Spirit might go through an era in which they found themselves being nourished by the Spirit. And it doesn't surprise me a bit that some people who have never had any access to mystery or transcendence or a kind of, you know, divine otherliness wouldn't find something great and fundamental to them in Eucharist. It, like, makes sense to me. It's just nourish yourself. What do you want? See, you're right back to that. What do you want? If one wants, if their current system of desires is to want God, well, then your spiritual formation over a lifetime might take you through errors. And I would encourage you just to be okay with that. And here's a little hint. Make it about yourself, not hating the churches you came from. Make it about your journey, not having to even analyze. I mean, unless you're a sociologist of religion or something. You don't even have to spend a lot of time analyzing. You might be way better off just to be thankful. God, just thank you, Lord, for Chuck Smith. Taught me to love the Bible. He doesn't have to be perfect. Calvary Chapel doesn't have to be perfect. Thank you, God, that there was an era in my life in which I came to treasure the Bible. Thank you, Lord, for John Wimber for the vineyard. Thank you for me becoming alert to the things of the kingdom, the things of the spirit. Thank you so much. John doesn't have to be perfect. Vineyard, you don't have to be perfect. It's my journey. It was, I found spiritual sustenance in those kind of places. They helped me grow in my salvation. They helped me, as the text say, to taste and see that the Lord was good in the way Peter did at the transfiguration. I mean, come on. What about that as an experience? Bumbling, seeing, right? It's just kind of crazy. But again, what it gets back to always is my own wanter. Do I want to be chosen? I mean, Al Gore's got nothing on inconvenient truths. That is a seriously inconvenient truth. If what you really want is to live your own life, are you feeling me here? Like if what you're really wanting is autonomy and your own thing and to be able to pursue my desires, well then to be chosen out of that into something different is seriously inconvenient. And this is why it always gets back to our wanter. And then Peter promises us that those who trust in him will never be put to shame. And he's thinking here of this cultural pressure that these Christians he was writing to were feeling. And he says, but if you just trust in Jesus, give yourself to him, you'll never be put to shame. Now, in terms of just learning from Peter and our own formation over a lifetime, what I think I want to just give our sort of core minutes to here this morning is the notion of thinking about external cultural realities and cultural pressure and then our own internal brokenness, the places where our will and current wants and desires don't work, they're broken. How then does one become a self? And I think this is one of the biggest things happening in humanity right now, especially in the developed world. I mean, if you, I guess if you're still worrying about what you're going to eat today, this might not be an issue. But for those, remember Maslow's hierarchy? For those of us who've gone past those first two or three levels and are up into what he called self-actualization, those of us in the developed world spend a lot of time just wondering, how do I create a self, right? So we might create a self around a career, what we drive, what we wear, brands, right? It's just a massive pursuit to individuate and to create a self. And currently, I think the, the, the sort of most common thoughts on this are, well, to become an authentic self, you have to throw off all historical, all cultural, and all religious control. 
Now we got 500 years of this since the Enlightenment and certainly since the French Revolution. This is just, I mean, this is as deep in Western culture as the air has hydrogen in it. I mean, this, this is just in us. That if you're gonna in any way come to an authentic self, you have to throw off all kinds of authority. Because to the degree that any sort of authority is impacting you, you're being inauthentic. So family, history, culture, religion, throw it all off. And I just want you to notice, now you do what you want with it, but I just want you to notice how that's the exact opposite of Peter's encouragement to root yourself in the history of God, which is precisely the capital T, capital A, authority. And now you see the human predicament. I must throw off all authority, but wait, myself is precisely rooted in an external authority. I was I'm like, I'm chosen for a purpose. I was created for a purpose. And to the degree that I get in the habit in creating a self of throwing off all kinds of authorities, well, how do I stop at God? And the answer is most people aren't. Or they're, you know, creating sort of a deity that they can live with that allows them to be themselves. But there's no sense of any sort of external authority challenging me. So the whole idea is, well, you got to sort of discover and express the hidden you. You know, the part of you that's been repressed by family. The part of you that's been held down by various authorities. You've got to throw all that off. And, and so then what it means to be a self is to have authenticity to expressing this true inner self. And that that's, to, today, that's the moral good. And today it's thought that that's the path to human flourishing. And I just want to ask for the sake of some sort of honesty, how do we feel like it's going? Like, do we really feel like the Western world has become more human over the last four or 500 years? More in the image of God? Or would you suspect that we're actually maybe becoming less human and that we're not, that we're not only dehumanizing ourselves, but in our own dehumanization, we dehumanize others? So then a basic question arises. And again, I just think if we're to be even minimally honest, we have to ask, is it only external authorities that are problematic or can we be betrayed by our inner instincts too? You ever been betrayed by an inner instinct? It's gotta be an addict in this room somewhere. I've been betrayed by inner instincts. I can't make the claim that it's only external authorities that are problematic. I have my own internal authorities that bang on to me actually more than external authorities do. Like you, I'm sort of irritated with politics, but it doesn't really affect my life that much right this second, but, but my internal realities that are malaligned impact my life every day. So you just think about it for a minute. Can our hearts and minds and desires be untrustworthy too, or again, only external authorities? Well, let's just use the, the, the easiest, obvious example here is around the sexual revolution. Again, I, I'm 61. My three older siblings were, uh, you know, uh, up to 10 years older than me, so up to about 70. So I grew up around real live hippies. I, I mean, the real thing. My older siblings were just full on in that sort of hippie thing. And so I watched the sexual revolution unfold, you know, as a very young adolescent, you know, 12, 13 years old. And, you know, this isn't preacher talk. I mean, any of you who have the time or the interest can go spend a half hour studying this, and you'll find out that, that, that I don't know of a study out there that in any way contradicts the fact that the sexual revolution has now, 60 years down the path, produced less sex, and certainly less satisfying sex. 
to where now young boys have almost no capacity to engage with a normal girl because of the freedom of pornography. It is, it is the growing trend that adolescent boys are actually losing interest in sex with another human being because it can't compete with what they can do on their screen. And so the notion of throwing off millennia of, of human understanding about what sex is and what it's meant to be has not, the, the throwing off of that authority hasn't produced anything good that anybody can find. There's actually more confusion than ever. Or take individualism. It's often led to isolation, to living alone, to little capacity for marriage or community. Or think of the big ones, you know, smoking drugs, alcohol, gambling, you know, those kind of things that we think of are sort of victimless crimes. Well, can I just tell you as the father of an alcoholic and a compulsive gambler that those aren't victimless crimes? Sometimes coming home after school and seeing bags of groceries on our doorstep, I would wonder, Mom, why is, there, why is somebody giving us food? Like, we're not poor. Oh, well, your dad gambled away his paycheck again. So you, think, so you see, we think in throwing off these authorities. I mean, if you just even just read the history of 60s music, you'll find that people who you and I all would adore, the greatest songwriters and musicians of the 60s, all experimented with LSD and stuff because they sincerely believed that it would get me outside of myself and help me be more creative. And so that idea of these sort of victimless crimes of, or victimless choices of, of, again, of smoking drugs, alcohol, gambling, whatever. All right, again, I know there's at least a couple addicts in this room, if those are victimless things and don't harm anybody, then why is there step eight in AA? Why does every alcoholic have to go through the pattern of making a list of all the people I have harmed and making amends? Because the pursuit of that kind of individualization is not victimless. Some of you in this room, I'm sure, have been a part of Al-Anon. Why is there Al-Anon? Because these things affect our systems. So this is one of those classic moments where I want to say, as I often do, do you think Jesus is smart? So switching from Peter now to Jesus. So go with me here. Jesus is smart when he said, if you drink of that water, you will thirst again. And it will become in you a habit. And that habit will both reflect and enforce your current system of desire. That habit will create a will in you. And you will continue to thirst. But... The water that I give you will spring up in you, Jesus says, causing rivers of living water to flow out of you. If you seek first the kingdom of God, you'll just know that all these other things will be added to you. So switching back to Peter. Peter became his best self by discovering truth in moments like the transfiguration and hearing precisely the father say, listen to him, listen to this external authority. Listen to the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And just giving yourself to that gently, like I began with, whatever your station in life is, whatever your current even level of passion for God, just start where you are. With whatever might be troubling you or you're dealing with, just start where you are and gently give yourself in obedience to that invitation. That Jesus says, if you come follow me, it will lead to abundant of life, to your true self, to a strong core purpose and a very certain unending future. So again, just, I, want to just, I want to end just by having you think with me since we're talking about Peter. I want you to think of the formation that has come to him. So now just hold in your mind here, Jesus moving from drawing his sword at Jesus' arrest to denying him at his trial to hearing Jesus say, Peter, throw your net on the other side. Now there, there, see again, there's some authority. Peter, you got your net on this side, but if you'll throw it on the other side, You'll catch great fish. It happens. 
Now just think of, you know, the, the sort of bumbling Peter that we always think about and how he is moved to this. How he moved to seeing that he couldn't create a self out of his own inner brokenness. Because even when he said, Lord, if everyone else uh, deserts you, I won't. But Peter's structure of desire couldn't make that vow happen. But somehow he's moving and teaching us that discipling and healing come from consistent interactive relationship with Jesus. They come from this process of ridding and craving, not just striving to modify behavior, but healing the heart from which behavior comes. Because from Peter we learned that discipleship is practical. It's not mostly theological. You can be wrong about doctrines. You can be wrong about who wrote Hebrews. You can be wrong about what does Paul mean when he says, uh, bless us, body, soul, and spirit. You know, is, is that what comprises human beings? All right, you can be wrong about a lot of stuff. But please look at me, we're done. Here's the one thing you can't be wrong about. Is Jesus precious to you? Is he the greatest? Does he have your ultimate respect and your most passionate commitment? You can't be wrong about that. But you can be wrong about elements of Christology. You can be wrong about what Revelation means. You can be wrong in your interpretation of Ezekiel. We're wrong about all kinds of stuff. But the one thing we can't be wrong about is what is the core thinking about Jesus? You, we have to just come to think Jesus is really it. He's the whole deal. And this then frees us from a cowering works-based life. But just seeing the preciousness of something, we automatically want to do the right thing. Can I just have like 30 more seconds? Like... Like, I know this was true of me as a dad, as a young dad, and I, I see it, like Debbie and I are going, and Carol are going through pictures now, because, uh, you know, moving. And, you know, I, I can just remember what it was like to hold Jonathan for the first time. He was a preemie anyway, so that made it even scarier, right? And can you just picture a first-time dad just with that kind of nervousness and wanting to do things right? Why? Against some external standard of dadness? I'd never heard such a thing. Now, look at me. No, it was the preciousness of what I was holding. And until Jesus becomes that kind of precious to us, the kinds of things that Peter and Paul and the rest of the New Testament describes are just always going to be kind of an in-and-out moralism, an in-and-out guilt trip, an in-and-out shame-based kind of thing. It's never going to work. But once we get the one thing right, Jesus, you're the bomb, holy and precious, as the text says. So just begin where you are. No matter how many setbacks you may have had in your formation, don't worry, God will find you. Interactive, eternal life, deliverance, and healing, all this can begin the moment we see that this is precious. Jesus is precious and following him is precious. That will automatically begin to rearrange our desires, our wants, and our loves. Bow our head for a moment of quiet. And this morning, you may want to give yourself to the Spirit and Inviting the Spirit to help you process this. Just where you are today, in this phase in your life, thinking of ridding and craving, what is the one thing you'd like to rid yourself of this morning? And just ask your, the Spirit to go with you there. Or maybe for others, this is more meaningful. What's the one thing or the one way in which you're craving spiritual nourishment? And again, invite the Spirit to go there with you.